Olin, and welcome to the final talk in the series on the fifth sun, Nanahuatzin, Xipetotec, Sipakli. I do intend or try to pronounce these words correctly. I very often mispronounce words, Sanskrit, Greek, Usually I get the accents wrong. And yet I use a good number of words in other languages to teach what I teach. As far as Nahuatl goes, I love this language and I don't often apologize, but I do extend my apologies to my Nahuatl friends and the Mexica and the descendants of the Toltec and Aztec people in Mexico. These are people living today whom I respect and I have, they are endearing to me and Latinos and Latinas also having lived in Santa Fe are an ethnic group for which I hold special affections. Uh, about the Maya, I don't know. Uh, I don't quite get the Maya. Uh, it so happened that just when I left Santa Fe many years ago, uh, Dennis and Barbara, Barbara Tidlock, who are expert Mayanists, had moved into town. And I really regret that we didn't cross paths. I would have loved to sit with them for an evening to be initiated into the uh, spirit and the mystique of the Maya. I've studied the Maya, of course, but somehow I don't quite get them in the way I get the Toltec and Aztec peoples. Well, enough of that sentimental chitter-chatter. Let's move on. My purpose in this talk, in this concluding talk, is to give you yet one more name a fourth name in Nawath, a name to conjure by, a name to inscribe in your neuro-linguistic circuits and carry in your body. And that name is Malinal Xochitl. Malinal Xochitl. That is the name of a great and powerful creature scorpion mother and you see the illustration of her from an Aztec codex in the thumbnail. Now I have a caveat and a disclaimer, caveat being of course a warning. I have a warning and a disclaimer to leave you with as you reflect on these talks. I realize it could be said of me, oh well John Lash is advocating hate. I'm open to that allegation, but it is entirely false. What I'm doing is educating you about hate, the force of hate, the moral deterrence of hate, and attempting to propose how to handle it. But what you do with what I say 
is none of my business. I am not endorsing or encouraging anyone to act hatefully. And it is your sovereign choice what you make out of what I say about hate. Now, I invite you to look briefly at a couple of instances of the typical objections that arise when the very word hate is mentioned. And I would often point out, I would point out before I begin with these two examples, is that talk about hate is often confusing and I would even say intentionally obscure due to the lack of making the distinction between hate coming in and hate going out. So I can assure you right now in the spring of 2023 that there's a considerable amount, a considerable blast of hate coming toward me. Me. Why? Because I'm a white heterosexual man and I belong to the white races. And as far as I know, in the current discourse, in the collective field of communication, in the mainstream media, in education, everywhere you look, there is nothing comparable to the blast of hate being directed toward the white races. So bear that in mind. Any balanced discussion of the subject of hate today needs to look at both sides, incoming and outgoing. So my first uh, caveat concerns the objection, well, hate is ugly, and I don't want to be ugly. I don't like ugly, so I don't want to have anything to do with hate. I dissociate myself from it, and I disown any connection with it. All right, well, it is true that hate can take some ugly turns, and it can be ugly in its expression. But so can love. Love can be really ugly. If you don't believe it, go look at some real crime videos about murders committed for love. So the ugliness of hate in some expressions is a fact in this world, and I would never deny it, and I can tell you I've been the target of it. When Jane Kerouac and I were in Mexico on our way to Yolapa, we had to stop in Guadalajara. And the first evening we were there, we went for a walk on a big plaza where there were many chairs outside. And uh, I was attacked, a group of young Mexican boys sitting there in the front of the cafes attacked me physically assaulted me and drove me out into the street and they were ready to knock me down and uh, kick me into unconsciousness, if not death. So I have been the target of hate and I have also on another instance, I was in a situation and a young Latino man came up to me and he had one of those exercise machines that consists of three very strong rubber bands with two handles that you stretch in order to exercise your arm muscles. And he stood there and he put out his hand, holding one handle, pulled the other handle back and aimed it at my face as if he were going to shoot an arrow at me. 
And you can imagine what would have happened if he had released that handle. So I've seen it. I can give you other examples from my time living in the Lower East Side in New York. And I agree. Some expressions of hate can be extremely ugly. No question about it. So how do you get a sense of hate in quotes? The animal force that we define as hate. How do you get a sense or picture of it when it would not be ugly? Well, I provide a link to the closing scene of the movie, The Counselor. And in that dialogue that happens in that five-star restaurant, there is some commentary that could show you the beautiful side of hate. Because hate in the beauty to come is the beauty that kills. And so the female character talks about her two cheetahs, Raul and Sylvia, and how she watched them taking down rabbits. She talks about the beauty and elegance of the kill. There's another way to look at hate and take that example as a human animal from the realm of non-human animals, the predatory felines. As you may know, I hold the predatory felines in very high regard. I revere them and I consider that the killing power of the predatory felines like the cheetah, the lion, the tiger, the jaguar, the leopard are examples from Mother Nature of the beauty that kills. And so you might consider aspiring to that level of beauty and power in some way in your own life. I certainly do. Talk about cruelty. There was one line in that three-minute scene where the female character says, there is nothing crueler than a coward. And I would paraphrase that and add, there is nothing more ugly than cowardice. So talk about ugliness, all right, but stand back, stand solidly on your two feet, stamp your feet to the ground, get grounded, and talk about it in a real and honest way, if you can, and if you want to. On the other hand, there's this objection. Oh, I don't want to be hateful. I don't hate anyone. Fine. So if someone says that to me, and they have, I would say, fine, that's your choice. And according to some people and some perspectives, if you don't hate anyone, and I own up to the fact that I do hate, that makes you a better person than me. Well, that's fine. But in my humble opinion, anyone who cannot own Hate is a pathetic excuse for a human being. The way I calculate the equation is, sure, you can hate without loving, but you cannot love without hating. 
because through hate, you protect what you love. Another aspect of that objection, oh, I don't hate anyone, I'm beyond hate, I disown it. It's an ugly and evil emotion, it's dark, you know. Another variation of that formula is, well, if you or I or anyone claims to hate, then it puts us at on the same moral level as those who are genuinely hateful. Well, I have to tell you, wake up and smell the chocolate, which was invented by the Aztecs, right? Uh, discovered by them and to which they were addicted. Okay, wake up and smell the chocolate because you are on the same level with them in Kali Yuga. You are on the cremation ground of the last decades of Kali Yuga and you cannot escape it. So if you think that any emotion of hate, any admission of hate is going to put you on the same moral ground as the predators, parasites, and enemies of life, you're right. So suck it up and live with it, pal. I'm only here to educate you about hate and how to handle it. I'm only here to invite you to aspire to the sacred calling of the beauty that kills. Malinal Shochitu, Scorpion Mother, is an image, call it an archetypal image, of the beauty that kills. And you might not think that scorpions are beautiful. That's your opinion. That's just simply a subjective aesthetic opinion. But what the scorpion represents is something beautiful and necessary for the continuance of life. Now, I want to point out that before I tell you about Scorpion Mother and where you can find her, that I did not sufficiently indicate in the previous three talks a few essential points about hate and cruelty, the cruelty that comes from acting on moral deterrence. First, it is not sadistic. It is not something to be exercised for the pleasure of harming others. No. Also, it is not punitive. And I emphasize that you take that point on board. It is not punitive. It has nothing to do with punishment. I've said before in these talks, there is no punishment in the beauty to come. Punishment is a protocol that comes out of the Abrahamic religions in a particular insidious way, in a unique way. So, no punishment intended, termination intended. But termination is not punishment. Finally, and perhaps this is 
the top of all my considerations, of which I've spoken extensively. The exercise of your moral deterrence, crossing the threshold of cruelty, is not righteous. Do not ever be righteous. Do not ever subscribe to those who call themselves righteous. You've heard of this tremendous disease of our time, the toxic pestilence of virtue signaling. It's nothing but the expression of righteousness. Wilhelm Reich called it the emotional plague. No, there is no righteousness whatsoever in the exercise of moral deterrence. It is not the righteous thing to do. It's simply the right thing to do, the correct thing to do according to the circumstances. May the righteous be damned. I've said this before, and I disassociate myself entirely. I would never use a phrase, for example, oh, I did that in righteous anger. Sacred anger is not righteous. It's a clean, cold blade. It's exercised. You exercise it to get something done. You don't gloat about how righteous you are in doing so. If violent force is the right response in a situation, then so be it. It has nothing to do with moral judgments. I'm reminded of a Burt Reynolds film in the uh, 1980s when the films, uh, still some of them, represented masculinity and femininity in a correct, sane, and healthy way. So someone asked the Burt Reynolds character, are you a violent man? And he replies, no, I'm not a violent man. I'm just good at it. And I could script those lines in another way. Oh, someone asked John Lash, hey, John, are you a hateful man? And I would say, no, I'm not a hateful man. I just know how to handle it in the right way. You see, this is the change. This is the moral frontier from which we look into the beauty to come. So with all that said, let's take a look at Malinal Shocht. You know, that's Shocht. But whether you pronounce the TL in the Hua is a big issue and it's a delicate matter. Sometimes you don't actually pronounce it, but sometimes you pronounce it as if it were a lingering whisper. She is Scorpion Mother. She is a figure in Aztec mythology. She is also a visible presence in the sky. There is a constellation called Scorpio, 
However, that's the name for an astrological sign, which is not the same as the constellation. So delete astrological Scorpio and go to astronomical Scorpion. There is a huge Scorpion in the sky. And it so happens that among the numerous constellations on the so-called ecliptic, which is the orbital plane of the Earth, it is the only one that actually resembles the creature for which it is named. If you look at the constellation of the lion or the bull or the ram or the fishes or whales, you require an act of imagination or visualization to add in, in order to picture the composite stars of the bull as a bull. That ain't the case when you look at Scorpion Mother in the skies. It is a constellation in the unmistakable shape of a scorpion, and it is unique in that respect. Now, as you may know, I'm a sky watcher and a storyteller of the sky. I'm a sky diviner, and I have taught this for more years than I care to remember. And one of the ways that I teach it, apart from showing you how to go out in the sky and observe these magnificent constellations, is through the mythology attached to them. And it so happens that in the immediate vicinity of the galactic arm where the solar system is located, there are five great constellational tableaus. And each of these tableaus contains education inspiration, direction. Each of these tableaus is a panorama of stories. And when you learn the stories that are illustrated in the tableaus, which you can actually go out and see, by the fact of connecting with your eyes, with the starry imprint of those constellations, you imprint the stories into your NLP. So observation is a really important part of using the celestial tableau as tools of education. And this is what I do. As far as I know, correct me if I'm wrong, I seem to be the only creature walking around on the planet right now who does this. And I do it extensively. So if you care to find out more about that, just go to Nemata and get involved. And then you can learn about these five great tableau and the stories they contain and how these stories are what I call directive myths that can guide your life to its optimum expression. I'm going to concentrate in concluding this talk on the tableau that contains Mother Scorpio. And this is called the Correction Tableau. And it involves one, two, three, four constellations which are interactive. So if you go out and look at the sky, and you can do it now, all through the summer months, you will see panning from left to right, the constellation of the archer, not the sign Sagittarius, 
which is invisible. Now, the actual constellation of the Archer, which is embedded in the Milky Way, as you look up, you are looking toward the center of the Milky Way galaxy, and there is the Archer. And the Archer is aiming with a bow and arrow to the right, and to the right there is Mother Scorpion. And standing above Mother Scorpion is the enormous looming figure of Ophiuchus, the snake tamer. And actually the snake tamer stars, the composite as it's called, of the snake tamer constellation and the scorpion constellation are merged. So what you picture is a figure of a man wrestling an enormous serpent and his left foot is positioned on the heart of the scorpion in the middle of its body and his right foot is positioned on the stinger. And by the way, when you look at the stinger of the scorpion, you are looking directly in the direction of the center of our galaxy. So the snake tamer is sort of like a yogi figure in a shamanic trance who is dancing, standing in a dance posture like an Aztec warrior of the jaguar or eagle cult above the body of the scorpion. And then as you continue, that's three constellations, are you counting? And then as you continue looking to the right, you come to that part of the tableau where the scorpion extends its claws. And the upper or left claw of the scorpion as you're looking at it, is doing something rather strange. Because the next constellation to the right, that is to the west of the scorpion, is called the scales. And you picture that as a set of scales. There's a vertical stem, a vertical beam, shaft, and then there's a cross beam. And from the cross beam, hang two strings, and on these strings hang the pans. And so the left claw of the scorpion is in close proximity to the cross beam of the scales. And in fact, the composite stars of the two constellations are closely merged. And what is Mother Scorpion doing as she extends her left claw toward the scales. You get, this is an interactive tableau. It is a living, live streaming, constellational display of divine imagination, which is also a facet of your human imagination, if you can reach it. What does the interactivity show? It shows that Mother Scorpion jars or jounces the crossbeam of the scales. This is called the gesture of reset or correction. And so the entire tableau, reading from left to right, Archer, Scorpion, Snake Tamer, Scales, is called 
the correction tableau. Now I've spoken and written endlessly over years about what can be learned from the study of the correction tableau and the four others as well. And I will never stop teaching about this. The teaching is endless. It goes on, it expands, it becomes more rich, complex, at the same time more simple, more applicable. But the point that I want to make in concluding, in order to make that point, bear with me, shall I concentrate on the anatomy of the scorpion, the anatomy of Malinal Shoji. The scorpion has two claws extending, obviously, with which it grasps its prey. It's also the claws with which it grasps, grasps or seizes its lover when scorpions mate. Now, <laughs> allow you to dwell with the ambiguity of that image for a moment. And then you come down and there's the head or upper part of the scorpion, the upper body, which is located visually by the brilliant star Antares. Okay? So Antares, in a sense, represents the eye of the scorpion in the upper part of the body. But in fact, the scorpion has more than one eye and may have as many as eight on either side of its head. But in any case, Aldebaran is the eye of the scorpion. So you have the claws that seize, the eyes that see, and then you come down the body, and it's uh, the body of a arachnid, I believe, and it's a segmented, crusty body. And when you come down to the third segment down, I believe, or maybe it's the fifth, there is the heart of the scorpion. The scorpion actually has a heart, and it's in that middle segment, and that heart is marked by the star called Epsilon Scorpionis. And then you come down and at the bottom of the segmented torso of the scorpion, Go look at the anatomy. You have the beginning of the tail, and it curves around to the stinger. And the stinger of the scorpion constellation is unmistakable. There are two diamond-hard glittering stars on the stinger. And by the way, the stinger of the scorpion has two segments, doesn't it? Now, those two diamond bright, diamond-hard, glittering stars that mark the stinger are called Shaula and Lasat. And they are absolutely unmistakable. And again, I emphasize, when you go out and look at them, you might want to remind yourself that you are actually looking toward the hidden center of our galaxy. Now, in concluding this talk, what I'm actually doing is giving you an instruction as a sky watcher and comparative mythologist who specializes in the 
lore and legend of the constellations, I'm going to give you a lesson. But you could as well say that this lesson comes from Scorpion Mother herself. And what she wants to teach you is how to handle hate. Now, one of the objections to hate is that, oh, it's an ugly emotion. It feels bad. It's toxic. It's dark. It's evil. I don't want to carry it around in my emotions. I don't want to carry it around in my body. Well, actually, Scorpion Mother can show you how to carry it. You carry it in the stinger. It's her venom. Hate is her venom. But it's only carried in the stinger passively until the moment it's activated. So she carries venom in her stinger. All scorpions carry venom in their stingers. But the venom is only activated for discharge at a certain moment. Therefore, neither you nor any scorpion you might encounter has to go around carrying hate all the time. You see? So the question is, well, if the venom is secreted actually in the two parts of the stinger, what causes it to be activated at the moment Mother Scorpion strikes. When she seizes her prey, at that instant when she seizes her prey, holds them in her claws, what causes her to discharge the venom upon the prey? Following the story here, one of the wonderful aspects of reading this sky mythology is that the tableau presents you with scenarios, narratives, and these scenarios present you with questions, and the more deeply you involve yourself in them and contemplate them, they provide you with answers. So let's go back one more time and review what's happening in the correction tableau. The archer on the left, that's toward the east, embedded in the Milky Way, is drawing an arrow back. And the stars that mark the forehand of the arch archer, which holds the bow, the star that marks the rear hand of the archer that draws the bow and holds the vein, are precise stars, which have longitudes, which can be plotted and you can go out and identify them. And all of that may possibly raise the question in your mind, if you're a curious sort of animal, well, what is the archer aiming at? Looking across the zodiac from left to right. Well, the archer aims at Epsilon Scorpionus the heart of the scorpion. That is a very great fact. That is true according to the astronomical data. That is true according to the graphic representations of the constellations, which have been drawn in many different ways, and I've studied them all and drawn my own. There is no doubt that the archer is 
aimed, poised, and ready to release an arrow at the heart of the scorpion. But why? I ask you, why? Is it to kill the scorpion by striking at its heart? One might think that. One could be forgiven. I hate that word. I don't forgive. But one could be forgiven for assuming that. And that is entirely wrong. What this magnificent celestial tableau showing you is that the archer releases the arrow at the heart of the scorpion in order to activate the scorpion to release its venom. Not to kill the scorpion, but to enable the scorpion to respond correctly and appropriately to what it's holding in its claws. And sure, the venom is there, secreted in the stinger. But it ain't no problem, my friends. The only time it needs to be activated is when the target is in sight, the target for it. And of course, the image of targeting, the meme of targeting, is brilliantly displayed in the correction tableau, isn't it? The archer targets the heart of the scorpion, and the scorpion targets its prey. And when it has its prey in its claws and seizes it, the arrow of the archer activates the heart of the scorpion, and it stings its prey to death. I advise you, in no uncertain terms, that what I've tried to tell you about moral deterrence contains something that can be called the will to death. You know that you have moral deterrence and you have crossed the threshold of cruelty when you admit and own that you hold the will to death. But whose death would that be? It's all about the right target, isn't it? The right target. What is the right target for your hate? I warn you, it may not be a white heterosexual male like me, but there's a lot of hate incoming to you if you are a decent, honest, freedom-loving human animal. And so you need to learn to be reciprocal. That is the image of the scales. That is the lesson of the scales. Reciprocity. And what is the reciprocal response to the hate coming toward you? It's the hate outgoing from you. And when you bring those two into balance, that is the formula for the correction of the evil operating in this world. It's not justice, it's vengeance. Vengeance is the corrective power.
Vengeance is the morally corrective protocol. Such is the instruction of Scorpion Mother. And I leave you with that as the conclusion of these four talks. And I leave you with a new archetype. As a matter of fact, many people have tried to correlate the various constellations. Ram, bull, twins, crab, lion, virgin, scales or balance, scorpion, snake tamer, archer, goatfish, manitou or water bearer, fishes or whales. Many have tried to make correlations between these constellational, mythic constellational images and the so-called Union archetypes, and I can tell you that it doesn't work out at all. And there is one huge glaring omission, and that is the omission of the archetype of Malinal Shotitu, the scorpion, the avenger. So I'll leave you with that new archetype, that image of Malinal Shotitu. And may it live with you, and may it live in you, and may you draw the direction and inspiration of Scorpion Mother to take you into the beauty that kills.